0: Hello and welcome to the Low-Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. I think I left off talking about uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics and how they were... Oh, you can't see what I see. There we go. Uh, I think we left off talking about hieroglyphics and how they were already in place at the very beginning of what we see of as the Egyptian state, which is kind of exciting um, because usually we think about societies being um, kind of starting out slow and building, building, building. It seems like ancient Egypt just kind of like, boom, it was there. They had, I mean, it took hundreds of years, of course, but they had all the things that we think of when we think of ancient Egypt, they had them right away early on, um, even by the old kingdom or even the the early dynastic period, which came just before that, uh, including pyramids. So that's what we finished talking about last time. So we get to the Old Kingdom. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry about that. Um, when we're talking about the Old Kingdom, we're talking about the construction of all of the pretty much all of the period pyramids. There are a couple built later on, but for the most part. If you're thinking of ancient pyramids being built, it was definitely in the old, almost definitely in the old kingdom. Um, it's commonly thought that slaves built pyramids, but actually, it was uh, corvee labor. Our old friend corvee labor. When you didn't have money to give for tax, you gave some of your time and energy to the state. Uh, maybe a month a year, something like that. Like you're in the national guard or something, um, and then. That's how all the pyramids were built. They weren't built by slaves. Common misconception, probably due to the Bible. Um, and if you're thinking about it in the Bible, because we just had uh, Easter and Passover and the Ten Commandments and whatever were on TV and we were watching it with Charlton Heston or whatever. And right, and the, what's the big complaint of the, the slaves in that narrative? Oh, they have to cut the straw for their own mortar. Well, Pyramids weren't made out of baked bricks or anything like that. They were made out of quarried limestone and quarried uh, other types of stone. So they weren't making them out of mortar or bricks or anything like that. So it doesn't jive that the, uh, the uh, Hebrew slaves were making the uh, pyramids. So yeah, what are you going to do? Corvée labor. Must less, the truth is much less exciting uh, than, than you might imagine. Um, Sometimes people would uh, give time and energy. Sometimes they would give grain. It depended on the ruler. Um, and then if you gave the state grain, they would then use that to hire full-time workers to work on the pyramid. So they could have done, they could have skinned the rabbit either way. Um, the neat thing about building a pyramid is, I mean, other than, wow, that's a really big pile of stone that we put up like little ants or something, um, just think of the social capital or the social power or control that's really what interests me a lot with these pyramids not necessarily the engineering marvels although they were really marvelous feats of engineering for example they had foundations that were within an inch or two of being completely flat and the way they did that was let's say this is the you're looking down on the on the ground where they're going to make this pyramid they made a water level by cutting canals through the bedrock in x's and y's, and then or x, crosses and, or, uh, x and y-axis, and then they filled them with water. They filled these canals, and then, so if we're looking at it from the side, right, you have canal, 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 and they're going to have a constant water level. So then what they would do is they would go down and cut out the bedrock above the water level and bring all the bedrocks right down to the water level, and in that way, they were able to make a very uh, flat base. Pretty ingenious, really. Um, <clears throat> so, I don't mean to downplay the engineering feats of the pyramids, uh, but I think even more interesting for me uh, as a social scientist is the social uh, structure that's behind them in the state organization. Mm-hmm. So, you, if you were part of the royal family, right, obviously the, the pharaoh would be buried. Uh, underneath a pyramid, um, and depending on how important you were to the state, you would be buried closer to the pyramid. The more important you were, the closer your tomb would be to the uh, pyramid. If you were really lucky you'd be buried you'd be killed and buried with the pharaoh <laughs> Khufu's pyramid. here's Khufu's pyramid, one of the great pyramids on the plain of Giza. Uh, you can see it had uh, pretty complex interior architecture, um, including a vaulted uh, vaulted tomb, air passages. Um, fault, uh, like they already knew about uh, what do you call it, grave robbing and things like that. So they had different uh, security measures in place, false false uh, tombs and things like that. Pretty amazing. By 2400s BCE, the uh, building of the pyramids ceased. Um, and this is largely due to the fact that uh, royal power began to wane, and we're going to start to slide into what's known as the first intermediate pyramid. Yep. period, not pyramid. Um, so let's see. can you see them here where this is my sorry, I'm just looking for my where'd they go? Oh, this is elephantine. Um, okay, so we'll get to elephantine in a second. uh i to make sure I get everything. Uh, although they did have uh, a hereditary rulership and people at the top of the social ladder, the social elites uh, were royal, and they got to that position by birth, not by merit, within that top echelon of society, you certainly had people who rose above others, and they did give jobs to people because they were better qualified for them, as long as you were pre-qualified by being royal, right? Uh, so it wasn't, necessary, it wasn't necessary that it was um, pre, uh, strict primogenitor or um, oldest child, oldest son, uh, got the job of the father, although that was often the case. Mm. Near the end of the Old Kingdom, um, provincial power began to decline. Where do I have? Um, I don't know why my slides aren't aligning with my. So um, this is a picture of Elephantine, which is a series. It's, it's the first cataract or the first um, rapids, basically, uh, in the uh, in the Nile. And this is about 600 miles south of uh, the Mediterranean, and it's the end of the early or the the border of early Egypt. The neat thing is. This is a series of islands, and they were really important spiritually to the Egyptians because it was thought that the flood emanated from underneath Elephantine, the island of Elephantine. And so there were temples and rites that were done on this island to help ensure that the Nile flood would come. Obviously, uh, we don't have any evidence that it actually did anything uh, because the Nile would have been, the flood would have been dictated by the um, rate of monsoon that year. Uh, but you can see it is a pretty large built-up temple complex here. Um, oh, there's Elephantine, yeah. Um, it's a defensible island site because it's right in the middle of the Nile. Um, local. It was also a trading post, and so the local officials here at Elephantine also um, wielded a lot of power because they were able to control things like ivory and ebony, Uh, not the song, the actual things, uh, coming in from Nubia, uh, which is the region south of uh, Egypt at the time. They also had major granite quarries. So we've seen probably uh, obelisks, which are tall, kind of like the Washington Monument. Washington Monument is based on an ancient Egyptian uh, monument, which is basically a pyramid on top of a tall column. And they would actually quarry them here near Elephantine. Here are the Elephantine Islands. And um, here is granite and sandstone. And this is where they would actually make them. They would dig. They would cut the, you can see here, the obelisk. Unfinished, they cut it as one piece out of the stone. They would dig down around the sides and then dig underneath until it was up on little pedestals. And then they would support it with ropes and take those out and then lift it up. Get it onto the Nile, and then sail it all the way down the Nile River to uh, Cairo, 500 some miles away, 450 some miles away. Uh, so pretty fantastic uh, feat of uh, civic engineer. Here's probably another one starting right. So pretty amazing sight, really. Um, okay, let's go back to the pyramids. So Giza, uh, the plain of Giza, is where the Great Pyramids are found. Um, these are, you can't really tell from scale here, but they're about uh, the Great Pyramid of Khufu, this one here, is about uh, 230 meters on a side and 147 meters high, so a football field and a half high. And it's only three minutes and six degr- uh, excuse me three minutes and six seconds off of true north. So that's a pretty accurate uh, Pretty accurate alignment to north, south, east, west. Uh, Probably they would have done it not with a metallic uh, compass because that didn't exist at the time. That was invented in China later on. Um, It probably would have been done with uh, solar alignment, so they might have gotten it off by a day or two. That's why it wasn't quite straight on. took about uh, 2.3 million blocks of limestone. So that means, let's say, one block every two and a half minutes for 10 hours a day for 365 days a year for the entire reign of 30 years. That's the rate that you'd have to put those um, limestone blocks down. To put it in another way, uh, this is the tallest man-made construction for 4,400 years until the Eiffel Tower was built. This was the tallest building on Earth. If you want to call it a building, I guess it could be considered a monument. But still, largest man-made or human-made construction for uh, 4,400 years. So that kind of puts all of our fancy things that we build in perspective. Uh, Let's see what sorts of our buildings are surviving 4,000 years later, let alone continue to be the tallest. Um, Frankly, uh, uh, texts of the time say that the everyday Egyptians hated building the pyramids. Um, They hated wasting tax money on it they hated wasting their time on it. They seemed kind of like frivolous things to do. Because remember, the people at this time, just like you know, us today, had their own individual personal lives, and their ups and their downs and their problems. And uh, if you see the state wasting so much time and money building these mausoleums uh, to the ruler, it made people upset, and there were instances of strikes where people, the workers would go on strike and say, we're not going to do this, not necessarily just because of the overall building of them, but because of specific grievances. We have records of union-like uh, bodies and strikes uh, 4,000 years ago. It's pretty crazy. Okay. So at the end of the Old Kingdom... Uh, we start to see a decline in the power of the royal house. Um, provincial power had began to grow and become more, challenge really the power of the overall state. So here's our map of Egypt, all the way down uh, to elephantine is down past here. So each one of these little divisions is called a gnome, not with a G, with an N. N-O-M-E, Nome, as in Alaska, right? Yeah, same way. Anyway, so these gnomes are basically provinces. It's the same thing. It's provinces. And so each gnome was ruled by somebody, a governor. And over time, those governors took on more and more power as the, um, as the pharaoh's power kind of declined. Um, and just like we have the term monarch, uh, talking about, not the butterfly, but of course the ruler. Um, we, If we put these two together, we get <clears throat> nomarch. And nomarchs are the uh, provincial state rulers who become kind of like tiny feudal lords uh, during the first intermediate pyramid. Gosh darn it. Period. Um, as state power declines, provincial power. So this would be like Let's say for some reason the United States presidency and federal government kind of decline and give more and more power to the states. They become less, the state, uh, excuse me, the federal government almost ceases to exist. It's only a shadow of its former self. It has no real local power anymore. And the governors then become more or less the, in this case, more absolute rulers uh, than uh, we had seen at this time, and they couldn't be overruled by the feds. Uh, that would basically be what's happened here. And so then you have a breakup of all of these this unified kingdom into these individual provinces. Um, and there's a lot of competition among nomarchs to show that they were the top dog. And sometimes you would see one nomarch saying, like, not only could I feed my people, but I feed fed people in the next state over and the next state over. And everybody hailed me as super awesome. Um, and that's... A little bit of an exaggeration, but basically, what you'd see uh, these people saying in texts. Um, probably, um, a lot of the decline of the national or the the, the uh, kingdom-wide uh, power came to disputes in the um, in the lineage who was to become pharaoh because it wasn't always clear. So. Huh. Super fun fact, uh, polygamy, nope, not polygamy, sorry, incest was uh, not cool for commoners, but it was really cool for royal people, and I'm not talking just like cousin, I'm not talking like full brother-sister incest. Yeah, and you might think, hmm, not so much, uh, but there's a good reason for it. Okay, so here's, here's Mr. Pharaoh, and he is of royal blood that is completely... Uh, you know, divine and special and all this stuff. And he marries somebody who doesn't really, you know, who isn't of the same lineage, and they have kids. Well, those kids are going to be only, oops, excuse me, half divine, and other half is normal in the world of Harry Potter. Wouldn't that be like a mudblood? Mud yeah, right. So, so what would be better then? Well, if uh, the pharaoh married his sister, who was also royal, oh, then their kids would be pure pureblood in the, in the Harry Potter parlance, right? They would have full royal blood. So from that logic, now I'm not saying you have to agree with it or think it's great, but it makes certain logical sense. You're not diluting the royal bloodline as much. If you have people who are more fully royal, elite, whatever, intermarrying rather than marrying some muggle or something like that, right? So, And even if they married someone like this, it wouldn't be a... You're not going to have a commoner marrying the pharaoh, right? This would still be an elite person. Um, and so over time, right, you might get marriages like this. And not necessarily great. For, like, there's a lot of congenital deformities. So we also have to remember that the, the pharaoh would have multiple wives and concubines. There would be a principal wife, right? She's the, she's the royal, I guess, the queen, and these are just concubines who are basically um, concubines. I mean, that's what they are. Um, and so they would have children as well, and they would be partially royal, and sometimes you would get competition between these two as to who is going to be the heir, especially if... Maybe this queen died out, or it was or her family became disgraced, or somehow this lineage was downgraded. perhaps one of the concubine's children would be picked, and then this person would say, "Yeah, but I was born first, or maybe the concubine had it. there's lots of different scenarios where uh, a different child might want to become Pharaoh, and sometimes the heir wasn't named, so it was a bit of a conflict, yeah sure, sidewise. sidewise. Almost certainly. I'm sure there were palace intrigues and poisonings and things like that. Um, I'm just... We don't... As far as I... Kn- I don't know of any texts that say that specifically because what is written in hieroglyphics on monuments is usually like the whitewashed version of history. Like, this is how... We want to present our history of happening. So they probably wouldn't have said, oh yeah, concubine A knocked off the queen by poisoning her tea in the morning. They'd probably say, oh, after a struggle with an illness, the queen died and the king elevated concubine A to queen status, right? They wouldn't say that. But it's very likely impossible. I mean, it seems. Maybe I'm just projecting our own. cutthroat world back onto them. It's hard to say 4,000 years ago, but very probably. Um, and that is the case in, in Rome. We saw where they didn't want to name uh, who the next emperor was going to be, because then the next emperor would want to knock them off. And that's well recorded. Um, it may be thought here, but uh, yeah. So I'm not an Egyptologist, but I can check and ask if there are specific instances where it's known that uh, somebody knocked somebody else off for their position. It's almost certainly, it would have happened over 4,000 years of history, or 3,000 years of history, so. But yeah, so royal incest, fun times. Um, but that conflict between the potential heirs might have also contributed to the downfall of the state uh, in this first instance. And we're going to see three declines and three intermediate periods. Um, in a lot of records, when you hear about the collapse of the, of the Old Kingdom, you'll hear about elite mismanagement and how, excuse me, they sent, spent the state coffers on building pyramids instead of doing other infrastructure, and that's what caused the downfall. And that certainly is a component of it, but uh, it's likely that we are overemphasizing textual information because, remember, um, as archaeologists, number one, coming out of a colonial history we were really interested in the elites and the big sites and the temples and, and the writing systems that were all recording elite points of view so that's certainly overemphasized in a lot of uh, early histories of Egypt that you'll read but it's also important to note that at this time um, there was a change in the Nile there was a decline of uh, decline of regularity and amount of water available for farming, which would have put pressure on agricultural system. And because the pharaoh was responsible, uh, much like the Maya rulers were responsible for uh, the gods providing water to them, uh, it could have undercut his, almost always his, but there were some female um, pharaohs, uh, but not at this time, um, his power in the kingdom. So there were a couple of different things working together both internal uh, within their control and external outside of their control. So um, we have, during the first intermediate period, we have fragmentation, outright civil war, um, and yeah, you could think of this as kind of like a dark age where they're breaking up into autonomous little polities or feudal realms where the nomarch would have ruled Then we come to the Middle Kingdom. Um, Middle Kingdom is a reestablishment of the overall uh, Egyptian state. Uh, the ruler of Thebes. Do I have a map, Scott? Where's your map? Dang it, Scott Johnson. This map should work. Thebes, yeah. So um, before this, Giza is up here near um, modern Cairo. This was the capital. Uh, of Old Kingdom Egypt, right? We have Lower Egypt and Upper Egypt, and right between them at Memphis was their capital, and here are Giza with the pyramids, right? Well, after the first intermediate period, uh, the ruler of Thebes, the Nomarch, uh, would rose to power um, and unified all of the, uh, the Nomarchs under him as the new pharaoh, um, he established his, um, his seat of power down here, which is really far away uh, from a lot of the rest of the kingdom. Um, and this became kind of like a... So whereas Memphis was like a real city where lots of people lived and it was a really complex, large, you know, metropolitan sort of city, um, and also the capital, uh, Thebes was a bit more of a it was a small town And then suddenly, it became the capital. Uh, So much like Washington DC, a lot of the people that lived there had to do with the state and the state uh, apparatus. And so it would have had a lot of uh, priests and a lot of bureaucrats and a lot of elites. Um, And obviously, it grew up in to be a city uh, because they needed to be fed and housed and kept happy. right? Uh, But uh, it was largely a city for the state. Um, And then also, just like they built Giza across from Memphis, across from Thebes, they built the Valley of the Kings, and we're going to see a quick tour of that later on. Um, So one major change that we see in the Middle Kingdom is that, well, it used to be said that uh, the afterlife became democratized. So... In, ancient, in, in the Old Kingdom, at first it was thought that only the pharaoh and maybe his immediate family members could make it to the afterlife. Everyone else, oh, that kind of sucks to be you. Um, and it was thought that after the middle, after, or during the Middle Kingdom, a lot of the nomarchs remained somewhat more powerful than they had during the Old Kingdom, and they agitated to become uh, admitted to the afterlife as well. Um, More uh, modern research shows that actually some elite members and uh, very wealthy people in the Old Kingdom were also allowed into the afterlife. Uh, But that became much more widespread during the Middle Kingdom and more, I wouldn't say common people, but at least uh, the afterlife became a a much broader club that people could get into. Mm -hmm. We have a lot more text from this site. Uh, from this time, which gives us a lot more insight into the lives of common people. And we see also a lot of really cool grave goods. Uh, like, they were nuts for dioramas, the Egyptians. They made um, these effigy um, these effigy little, little workers uh, baking bread or making beer or doing these sorts of things and uh, put them in tombs likely to represent the things that needed to be done for the person in that tomb. They needed a, a whole cadre of bread makers or, or beer um, brewers or things like that for the afterlife just to keep them comfortable. And so they, instead of you know, killing a whole bakery worth of people, uh, they would make effigies like this. But they're um, really useful for us as archaeologists because they're kind of, um, you know how accurate are they? How idealized are they? It's hard to say, but it certainly gives you an idea of what perhaps a bakery might look like at least from a cartoonish sort of pro, um, projection so you know perhaps these are as accurate as for example The Simpsons right you couldn't get an idea of a lot of parts of our culture from watching from you know little snippets of the Simpsons but they're still cartoonish and this might have some aspect of that where they're a little bit cartoonish or um, artistic uh, there's a little bit of artistic liberty being taken hard to say um, if the Old Kingdom, oh yeah, here's another one. Whee! Rowing boats. Uh, So if the Old Kingdom, just looking ahead, okay. Um, If the Old Kingdom was emphasizing these large monumental architectures, uh, architectural features like uh, the pyramids, the Middle Kingdom was a lot more artistic and less huge, right? Uh, So there was a lot more uh, carving, a lot more Smaller artistic uh, creations, statues, uh, relief, um, painting, things like that, that we find in tombs that are way more complex and competent in terms of artistry, uh, but they are not as uh, large. So the, uh, the tombs are much smaller, but the quality goes up a lot. So one, um, oh yeah, so note here that we have, oh, it's not qu- quite an example of co-regency. One uh, institution that was created uh, was co-regency. So uh, regency is um, rulership or uh, kingship. Um, so co-regency, there's two of them. So basically the idea is you would have one supreme pharaoh, And he would be ruling, he would have his offspring, um, and then either his offspring or maybe his nephew or something like that would be installed as the kind of like the junior ruler, have some time through the middle of this guy's life. And as he got older, um, he became less powerful, and the new regent took over. Um, And then, you know, maybe this guy died here, and then they would install a new junior ruler. And then when this guy died, they'd install a new junior ruler, and the junior ruler obviously becomes the senior ruler when the old one dies. Um, and this really cut back on the squabbling after the fact of who's supposed to be the heir. Well, the heir is already in charge, and in a lot of cases, if the old ruler lived to be kind of old and kind of senile maybe, uh, the new ruler was already ruling, right? So he just kept going, and then in picked his heir, the heir was installed, and they kept going on. So it was a co-regency was introduced at this time, and that really cut down on the instability. Um, at the same time, the nomarchs did not want to relinquish their power. They wanted to be uh, very independent. They didn't want to give up their, their uh, hard-fought or one uh, power that they got during the first intermediate pyramid Period. <laughs> Uh, and they did retain greater autonomy, Ro- local provinces, and their rulers did have a lot more power at this time. Um, so they were able to fight back against the state, uh, but there was a much more cohesive state at the time. Um, now, there—that isn't to say that co-regency was the only was a silver bullet. There was still a lot of. Um, Let's see, where am I? Yeah. Burp, burp. Oh, I had all kinds of fun things. Um, sorry about that. So um, so, so Thebes, uh, Thebes is over on this side. And then in the desert here, we have a whole bunch of temples. This is across the river. Uh, and then Valley of the Kings is back behind here. This is where a lot of tombs were. And the tombs here, the idea with the pyramids was make it big and strong and seal it off from grave robbers. The idea with the Middle Kingdom and onwards is to build tombs that you can't see. They're hidden in the uh, valleys. And that's why we find some of them unlooted. The problem is, you still have workers building them, and they know where they are. So what are you going to do, kill your workers afterwards? Probably not. Um, and you know we still have quite like the Temple of Karnak. That's what this is. Yeah, I'll hop into thieves here in a second. Um, yeah, I'll just hop into Thebes now. Uh, so we have things like the um, this major temple at Karnak, which still exists. It doesn't look like this, um, but it's still quite there. Oops, sorry. Uh, you can see they've reconstructed a lot of these rooms in the back. Um, this is kind of an exploded view. They didn't have hover technology at the time. Don't worry. Um, so you can go and visit uh, a lo- the main temple, uh, state temple at Thebes. It's still there. Um, and you can see there's a temple over here there's a direct line of sight into the temple of karnak all across and, and note even today how densely farmed this area is when we talk about uh, when we get to farming we'll talk about how they really had to utilize every square inch because it was such a small area that if it was a farmable lowland they farmed it because it was really narrow and you can see The only reason there is farming there is because of irrigation. Once you get to the edge where they stop irrigating, it is desert. So just remember that when we get to. um, uh, This is a temple, Dear El uh, Bari across. uh, This is the temple here that is aligned with the main uh, city of Thebes here. So this was built. um, Unusual construction. they built it right into the cliff face rather than uh, building it up on a flat plain, which is a little unusual. Um, The king's tomb, he was one of the first buried over here, way in the back in the alabaster shrine, which is pretty amazing. Okay, Um, so by the time we get to the end of the Middle Kingdom, we see that co-regency system kind of break down and falter. And... That's one factor. Number two factor is external forces. So, there are Syrian-Palestinian immigrants moving into the lower delta. So, people from the Middle East. And Egyptians are not really uh, big fans of people from elsewhere. They're kind of uh, xenophobic. They don't really like uh, outsiders. So, this can be a problem. Um, Some people have argued that this is the Hebrews coming in, but it doesn't seem to line up time-wise. So, um, that's uh, just a sidebar it 's really unknown what when the people that so uh, as a judeo as a country made up of a lot of judeo christian people, many of us are well aware of the uh, of the uh idea of uh the Hebrews coming in and then leaving uh it 's in tons of movies in English and whatever, so many people know about it so I just thought i 'd mention we don 't really know when that happened if that happened or anything like that however. Seems likely that it did, uh, just from the richness of the textual evidence. But we don't have the Egyptians talking about it, uh, be- probably again because of the reason I mentioned before. They would w- want to whitewash their uh, their historical record. So if you had a major slave revolt and they all left, and lots, you know, it was a disaster for your economy. You're probably not going to write that down as like, oh yeah, and then we had a really terrible year, <laughs> you know. Uh, they would have talked about something else. So it's unlikely that that was them coming in. Um, but I just thought I'd point that out in case that was a, a question. Anyway, um, and from the south, they had the Kushites uh, from the region of Kush, K-U-S-H, um, which the uh, land still exists, but I think it's in Ethiopia. Um, so they moved up from the south, and they started to take over the border zone. So from the north and the south, they were being encroached on by external forces, um, at the same time, there was a hiccup in the um, there was a hiccup in the uh, what's the word the the Nile's uh, levels, and so uh, agriculture again would have been disrupted. Not the only reason, but also a factor. Um, so during the second intermediate period, um, the northern half of the country was ruled by these Palestinian, Syrian, Middle Eastern people that we don't really know who they are except for by the name Hyksos, which um, is an Egyptian. It's from an Egyptian word that basically means uh, rulers of a foreign land. So that's pretty vague. Uh, But these were apparently people from the Middle East who came in. They were seen as Egyptians as... You know, elite rulers from wherever they were, but they weren't Egyptian. Nevertheless, they took over um, and ruled the southern, excuse me, the northern half of the country. Um, this really didn't sit well with the Egyptians because the Egyptians, remember, had a very um, ethnocentric point of view uh, that their way of life was the best. Their land was like everything we do is the best. It's Egyptian, it's the right way to live, etc. cetera. Um, and the Hyksos were not them. Uh, and they, when they came in, they kept a lot of their native traditions, burial practices, things like that. However, they did adopt some Egyptian things, like they took Egyptian royal names and they used hieroglyphics to write their names on monuments and stuff. So they were uh, a rather colorful uh, but short-lived um, external rule. One of the, I think the first... Yeah, the first external rulership of Egypt by another power. Now we're going to see more of them coming up. Uh, eventually, there was a resistance, right? You can think about, well, I guess it would be, it's unfair to say it's a resistance, because it's like the old empire coming back, right? So it'd be like, let's say, the, in Star Wars, the rebels beat the empire, but then the empire strikes back. And they're then the resistance. They're the underdogs. Then you're rooting for the empire? That doesn't make sense. Uh, but basically, that's what happens. Uh, the Hyksos gets driven out by a resurgent Egyptian force, again coming out of Thebes. So Thebes remains a hotbed of tradition and old-school Egyptian uh, way of living. And then we get into the New Kingdom, uh, revitalized and... Unified under Amose. Uh, um. So the problem with Egyptian hieroglyphics is that they only write the, the vowel, uh, consonants. So we are guessing a lot of times on the vowels that are involved. Like um, like that's some sort of, don't know how to pronounce it because I don't know what the vowels are, but that's some sort of title in Egyptian. I don't know what it says. <laughs> uh, but that's about how Egyptian hieroglyphics work. And it's fine if you know the language. You can fill in the blanks. Like, uh, right, you can still read, all right, does it have an H? It doesn't have an H. You can still read melancholy, right, without, I can't spell. Uh, that doesn't help. Uh, But you can still read it without the vowels, if you know, if you're used to that system. Uh, But it makes it a little hard for us to uh, recreate all of the um, Egyptian pharaoh names and other names. Uh, So if you see them written differently in different places, that's probably one of the reasons why. Um, Anyway, Egyptians uh, came back stronger than ever. Uh, In addition to kicking out the Hyksos in the north and the Kushites in the south, they continued marching and expanding, um, and they went out into the Middle East, and they started expanding up in all the way up into Turkey and all the way down to the fourth cataract. So before that, they had just gone down to the first cataract, but now they pushed farther south than ever before and farther north than ever before, and they became a major regional power and very expansive, which is unusual because usually the Egyptians are very kind of inward-looking, insular, and uh, or at least that's how they like to present themselves. So this is a period of um, international expansion. Part of the reason for this may have been that they were, if you think back to Mesopotamia, they were in living next to very expansionist and very uh, aggressive powers like the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and others who would have been trying to expand And perhaps they realized, you know, if we just put our border here, eventually there might be a power that could take us over. And so maybe if we expand a little farther, it's going to make it harder. They're going to think twice about uh, challenging us. And so they started to, um, perhaps, perhaps it's one of the reasons they expanded. Also, you know, it's nice to have economic things uh, flowing into the Nile Valley from outside uh, at a better rate if you are in control of that area. they started a professional military. Um, before this, uh, military would have been conscript. Hey, we have a war. Let's go. Now we have people who are permanently in the military, permanent soldiers, standing military. They become, uh, as opposed to previous periods where the, uh, the ruler, the pharaoh, would have been like the chief priest or um, would have been a main civil servant, now he is the chief warrior, and he actually, I wouldn't say at the head of the the spear, but he would have certainly been more involved with war um, and conquest. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, They also, as I said, uh, as they expanded, they were coming in contact with more people, and they uh, adapted new technologies like chariots, and yeah, I know chariots don't, might not seem like a big deal, but this would have been the tank of the early battlefield. Because before that, everybody would have been uh, on foot or maybe pulled with uh, maybe a chariot or a four-wheeled chariot pulled by donkeys. Uh, here they actually import horses and two-wheeled chariots, which are really mobile, really dangerous. You can drive. You can have an archer on the back. It's, uh, it's like the equivalent of a tank uh, at that time. And they uh, took that from the Middle East and used it to continue expanding. Compound, excuse me, uh, composite bows um, and new metals were also brought in and uh, used to revitalize the military. Also at this time, uh, rulers get a little nuts. They... uh, That's not very fair or objective, is it? Um, They start to take on more and more royal um, or divine sorts of things. So they would have been royal before, and maybe the gods appointed them. Now they're starting to say things like, I am the representative of such and such god on earth. And then they'd start to say things like, I am such and such god on earth. Um, And so they became increasingly divine. Before this, they might have been like semi-divine. Now they're saying, like, I am a full-on god. All you will tremble before me, sorts of things like. So the level of, uh, of egomania uh, reached quite the peak. Um, and this really pissed off a lot of the commoners and others who thought this was uh, a little bit too far. And I can't read this for some reason because I didn't use contrast in color. Um, but the Amarna subperiod, the Amarna subperiod uh, of the New Kingdom is really fascinating. And involves people that you know of uh, Nefertiti, uh, Tutankhamun, and his father, uh, Akhenaten. So, this is a short lived, you know, 30 year, 20 year, 25 year sojourn into a cult, like the royal family basically became cultists of a different type of religion. So you have the state religion that I'll talk about later, which uh, if you've ever read about ancient Egypt, you've probably heard of the Pantheon of the different gods they had, you know, not dissimilar from the Greeks um, in terms of how it functioned. At this time they said, okay, there's all these gods, but there is like one God that's above all others, and it wasn't had nothing to do with the uh, Judeo-Christian God. It was uh, the sun god. Um, Amun, And or sorry, Aten, A-T-E-N, Amun is the, yeah, Amun's a different one, uh, Aten. So it's like the sun disk, often it's translated as the sun disk, and you can see here the sun disk has like hands, and it's reaching out, and so um, this is, uh, that's Akhenaten, that's Nefertiti, and then these are their children, one of which is Tutankhamun, whose name at this time was Tutankhamun, actually, because Aten was like their main god, so they named their son after him. Um, and so if you look at the, how these people are represented, they're kind of like a little odd looking. Um, they have these like distended bellies. And these like kyphotic curved backs and these super long limbs with really like E.T. like fingers, uh, the elongated heads. They're just kind of they are kind of unusual looking from the, Egy- the typical Egyptian style. Uh, this is a new style during the Amarna period. Um, and they moved the capital to their new site called Amarna. Oops, there. Uh, which is interesting because Amarna was built. Like, basically, he's like, we're gonna build a city here, and it's gonna be the new capital. Everyone's like, okay, Pharaoh. <laughs> and they did it. And then, of course, after the Pharaoh died, and then Tutankhamun died, they're like, yeah, let's go back to Thebes. And they did, which means they left uh, Amarna kind of unadulterated. They oh jeez, Louise, I'm sorry. Got going on. Argh, got going on um the Amarna period cuz it's super interesting and I'll pick back up there cuz they're fun and weirdos. It's like it's like a cult took over like the <laughs> rulership of a major nation. It'd be like It'd be like what happened in North Korea or South Korea where they uh where the woman's like fortune teller, not fortune teller. She was like her spiritual advisor became like the main oh anyway see you friday sorry thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture find out more by visiting our website lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com there you'll find the low-tech podcast our blog our event calendar and other things going on around the institute you can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on itunes google play and many other podcasting apps the background music is Rachmaninoff's piano concerto number two in c minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Like License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.